It's a beautiful day to be alive. I hope you are smiling or attempting to put a smile on your face because you have made it to see another day. And for that, you should feel blessed. I hope you are doing fabulous today. Welcome to another edition of the Cool Sore Podcast. And I hope you had a happy Thanksgiving, happy holiday, whatever you celebrate. Um, hope it was beautiful and blessed. Today, we are joined by a cool soror of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. She is Stephanie Mitchell Hughes. But before we get to her episode, today is Giving Tuesday, and I need your support. So don't ask much from you guys, but I do have a nonprofit called Sporty Girls Incorporated in which we encourage minority girls to participate in sports such as swimming, soccer, tennis, golf. And we're now adding lacrosse to our mission while increasing and cultivating their life skills. So today is Giving Tuesday. So if you could do me a favor and give any amount, all you have to do is log on to sportygirlsinc.org. That's S-P-O-R-T-Y, girls with no Z, G-I-R-L-S, Inc, I-N-C, dot org to donate today on Giving Tuesday. Because of your generous donations that I know you will make, we can continue to offer free programming for girls throughout the metro Atlanta area. And our hope is to open a facility in the next few years. So, yes, we are Sporty Girls Reloaded for 2018. New programming, new sport, new events, and new ways to get involved. That's SportyGirlsInc.org. So, please, please, please do that for your sister friend. Also reminding you that you need to go ahead and log on to greentopgifts.com because it is the holiday season and you need your wrapping paper. Yes, you need your stocking stuffers and all the amazing items they have at greentopgifts.com and go ahead and get your Clarence Claus hoodie. That's greentopgifts.com. Your code is COOLSOWAR for 10% off your purchase. Also, make sure you log on to foundersandpearls.com. Are you looking for that exclusive box just for your sorority? Well, Founders and Pearls has exactly what you need. Beauty and wellness items, inspirational, unique, exclusive paraphernalia, all from small businesses. And make sure you use the code word COOLSOWAR for your chance to have access to the lit holiday box for free with purchase of a subscription if you order by December the 2nd. After the 2nd, the Cool Soror code will allow you to have free shipping on any purchase. So that's foundersandpearls.com. Log on today. And now, without further ado, you will definitely be inspired and moved by Stephanie's story. And her episode is called No Longer Unraveling. Enjoy. You know you gotta be a cool soror to talk to the cool soror herself. I'm a cool soror. Hey y'all. I am a cool soror of What's up y'all? I'm a cool soror of Hi, I am a cool soror of podcast hosted by me Rashawn Ali. It's another edition of the Cool Sore podcast and very excited to have a very dynamic woman on the line with us today, Dr. Stephanie Mitchell Hughes. She's an attorney, writer, and speaker and I just love her passion for life. Stephanie Mitchell Hughes, you are a cool soror of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. Welcome to the show. How are you today? 
I'm fine. Thank you. Thank you. I I really appreciate your inviting me. Absolutely. Um, You are a woman who has done a lot of things and you are very passionate about what you do. Where does your passion come from? I think I think it's rooted in and my activism is rooted in just what I heard in growing up. Right. Um, I am the child of educators. Um, everyone in my family, except for me, um, is in the field of education. And so in growing up, my parents worked in a large urban school district. I am from Cincinnati, Ohio. Mm-hmm. And I heard stories about children primarily who were poor and who were struggling and the things that they went through. Um, so I think that for me, it started there. The other part of it is that it started just in my own personal life in what I endured at the hands of my peers Mm -hmm. in growing up. Nice. So what you endured at the hands of your peers, can you go a little deeper into that? What exactly does that mean? Um, I went to school with the same core group of kids from kindergarten all the way up through high school. And as we got closer, like junior high and high school, the number of kids who I was in school with, it increased exponentially. But I was oftentimes teased um, because of my teeth. I have a a gap in my teeth. I was teased um, and called ugly. And I used to cry a lot and be very sensitive about it. But at one point in time, and this probably, I think, crystallizes it the best. um, I was in high school. There was a boy who I had a crush on, and I gave him a Valentine's Day card Mm -hmm. for Valentine's Day. And I didn't hand it to him. I left it on top of his books in his class. Well, of course, it's high school, and people invariably found out that I was the person who had given him the card. And so we were on the school bus going back home. He did not ride the same bus that I did, but a girl who liked him and subsequently became his girlfriend um, did. And so she was sitting behind me and she says, you know, he said that the ugliest girl in the whole school gave him the card. Mm. Well, I went to school with about 2000 kids and, you know, that really, even to this day, I still remember that. Right, right. And it, it it just really, really affected the way that I saw myself, um, my own perceptions of my own worthiness, uh-huh. and really going to Spelman saved me. Wow. It really wow. saved me and, and, and ter- because I went from an environment where... I had I was involved in a lot of things in high school. I had friends, I did all sorts of things. But where I was viewed and perceived as one thing, and then I went to this environment where I was accepted just as I was. Right, right. How did that, I mean, when did you see the change in yourself? Was it almost immediate once you got to Spelman? Um, Yes, I would say so, because it took a little bit for me to get acclimated um, to, to being at Spelman, just like any other transition that you'd go through, um, when you're adjusting to college life. But I think, I think it was almost as sort of like a seamless 
way of just evolving and and really becoming immersed in that experience. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Beautiful. So so let's talk about more of your your Spelman experience and, and, and starting to embrace yourself. What did you do on campus? Because obviously you're you're an innate leader. What did you do on campus to help continue to cultivate your growth as a woman? Um, became I was involved in some different activities on campus. Um, one of the things that I did a lot of when I was in high school, I was in a lot of plays. Mm-hmm. And so I did stuff when they had, and the activities and plays and things, when they had um, Morehouse's homecoming and they had the pageant and all of that. And um, just also one of the other things that I became very heavily involved in was the major that I had. I was an English major. okay, And so, um, you know, the, some of the people who taught my classes, Pearl Cleage taught are my course and she taught us the color purple we read the color purple before it was the color purple man and i was i remember i was 19 at the time and you know she was talking to us and trying to explain just like what the color purple meant and represented and as a 19 year old young woman with not a lot of world experience and life experience. It was sort of like trying to understand the color purple through a keyhole. Mm -hmm. And, and so um, one of the other things that happened was we had um, Beverly guy, chef tall. She, I took some classes with her and we would have um, lectures that were connected to the English department on campus. And so you had just a who's who of black literature coming through an on Spelman's campus. And we had a chance as an English major to be involved with that. Um, Wow. mm -hmm. It was, it was very, um, it really helped me to understand where I fit, but it also gave me a very clear sense of who I was capable of becoming. Wow. So where did you fit? Because you said, you know, you became clear. Mm -hmm. What was that clarity moment? What was that moment of clarity like for you? It was, it was like shedding skin, if you will, like this barrier, if you will, you imagine Um, that you have a scab. If you have wounds all over your body, your body's going to be covered in scabs. So what happens though with me was, and that being at Spelman, it was like slowly and very, in a very deliberate way, that skin was removed. Mm -hmm. And I was able to start shedding that. And I had friends around campus who were in my major. I had friends who um, were just doing some very different kinds of things. I always like to get get to know people from different vantage points. And what I mean by that is on an, on, at an HBCU, 
the social aspect is really, really is like very important. And it's like an extra layer on top of everything else. So there are a group of people who other people look to and admire because of the social standing that they have. Right. Well, I had friends there and I had friends that were just not necessarily out in public and viewed in a certain way. So I just help. I liked being able to move very easily between those groups of people and just establish relationships with them. Beautiful, beautiful. So what was it something as far as, you know, on the track for you to become a lawyer? Was that something that you always wanted to do? Yes. Uh huh. Yes. Yes, it, yes, it, yes, it was. And I, well, you know, I guess I have to sort of revisit. No, I didn't necessarily <laughs> always want to be a lawyer. I always wanted to go to law school. Okay. And the distinction for me really became apparent my third year of law school. Okay. I went through, I went to law school. I went to law school at Case Western Reserve University in Cleveland, Ohio. And I can remember the registrar at Case's Law School, Mrs. Tenenbaum, <laughs> coming to me my third year and saying, well, you know, um, you're going to graduate in a few months and you need to get started with preparing to take the bar exam. And so I was really immersed in the educational part of going to law school. So when it became, okay, well, you're getting ready to graduate. So now what are you going to do next? And I did not have a real clear sense of what I wanted to do. I knew what I did not want to do. Okay. Um, I knew that I did not want to go and work at a law firm. And that, that was out because I felt like, um, I am too much of a out sort of outspoken person I, and a little bit of a noisy person, um, to, 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 to be in the quiet, yes. uh, white, you know, glove places of a law firm. So, you know, that part was, um, that was a little bit of a rub for me. Yeah. So what was your response to Mrs. Tenenbaum when she said you need to figure this thing out? And you were just, like, uh, nah. <laughs> I was just like, I thought, okay, well, see, Mrs. Tenenbaum was the type of person you just did not argue with. Her. Oh, I gotcha. Okay. <laughs> so when she came to say it is time for you to kind of get yourself together and let's get cracking, it was time to get cracking. Okay. Um, but one of the things that happened to me when I was in law school, um, there is a law firm, it's a large law firm, and it's, I believe they have offices still around the United States. And they sent a request to interview um, black law students mm-hmm. when they came to interview at Case. And so I happened to go into, I didn't sign up to interview with them, but I happened to be in the um career office, pre-placement office on the day that they came. And I looked at the list and I did not see a single black person's name on the list. And they were coming to recruit and interview yeah. black students? Okay. And they asked to see them. They, they were going to interview other students too, but okay. they specifically asked to see black students. Okay. And I thought, okay, well, we've got people who are on law review. We've got people who do all kinds of things. And you mean to tell me that you could not even grant a courtesy interview. Right. And that made me really 
really angry. And so when I become angry about something that is a sense of injustice, the question becomes, what are, I'm not going to stand here and be angry about it. I might write a letter. I might fuss about it for a few minutes, but I'm going to take specific action to deal with the issue. So I started doing some research and poking around and discovered that in um, the Black Law Students Association around the country, at least at that time, they were divided up into regions. So I would, Case Western is in the Midwest region. And so I found out that the Northeast region was, they would have this, it was a Black Law Students job fair. They invited people from all over the country Mm -hmm. to come and specifically recruit students of color. Mm -hmm. So I thought, okay, well, we can just do the same thing. I I think we can do the same thing. And so I set about calling. Now, I was a second year law student. I was ending my second year, getting ready to go into my third year. And I started calling people and asking, okay, well, tell me, how do you put this together? What is it that you did? What does this look like? I got all of the details together. And over the course of the summer, I had a job. I did have my job, but I also enlisted some secretaries to start sending out letters to different company, corporations, law firms, governmental entities, all kinds of people from all over the country to come to Cleveland to recruit black law students. Right. And so I met a man who came from, he was then a partner at O'Melveny and Myers, which is a very large law firm. He was based in um, California. And I want to say it's Culver City, California. And he, I went and I talked to him that day and he says, I want to ask you a question. Because when people met me, they were like, well, do you work at Case? And I was like, no, I'm a student. Wow. And so people didn't <laughs> quite know what to make of me. Uh-huh. So, but then he asked me this question. He says, well, what are, how are you going to take what it is that you, the skills that you use to put this together and how are they going to then translate into what you do as a lawyer? And at that time, I just did not have an answer for him. And that is a question that has come up like, you know, in it's not it hasn't so much dogged me, but it is a question that I still ask myself. And so one of the things and I, you know, that I've always been and I now take pride in this is a little bit of a misfit, Mm -hmm. a little bit of an oddball. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is. I still in I've been out of law school now for 29 years and uh, the jobs that I do as a lawyer, with the exception of the time period that I spent representing children, um, they are jobs that I do because I have to have a job. Mm -hmm. They're not something that I feel really passionate about one way or another. And so the question, so what, but what I have noticed happening to me, because now I'm now 55, is that I don't discount those experiences because what happens with them is I can take the lessons learned from being a lawyer, from being a single mom, mm-hmm. from being a spouse, all of those places that I've been. And they're sort of like beginning to mesh and gel together to let me know and give me a sense of who it is that I am becoming. 
Wow, who it is that I am becoming. Yes. And and yeah. you, and you've never been shy about telling your story. Um, I had a chance to to look at a snippet of your TEDx Columbus um, speech, which was phenomenal, and you talked about those valleys and being very transparent and vulnerable. How important is it for you to continue to be vulnerable so that then you can help someone else? It is why I am here. This is, this is, it's why I'm here. Yes. Um, because, and I don't know if it had anything to do with turning 50. I don't know if it was the epiphany that I had the year that I was able to speak at TEDx Columbus, I'm not really sure what it was, but I just decided that my silence or my not saying what it is that I have been through wasn't going to help some help anyone. Mm -hmm. And it's not because I think that I am so all of that or what have you, I am just no longer willing to keep secrets. I'm no longer willing to hide and, and feel ashamed. I'm no longer willing to do that. And I think that, and I've heard this said, you're only as sick as your secrets. Oh my goodness. That is. So it's just really to me time to stop living like that. You're only as sick as your secrets. Right. Yeah. So go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, it just binds you. Yeah. And I'm just not no longer willing to live bound. Yes. So when when was this transformation? I mean, you have, have, have openly talked about depression. You've openly talked about divorce. When did you see a change in your life and that you knew something wasn't quite right? When my um, now former spouse left. Okay. Um, because when my when my former spouse left, um, it re- it was like someone had uncorked a champagne bottle that they had spent like 14 years shaking up and everything that I had been holding on and swallowing down and pushing down, it it just sort of like, it just came out. It just sort of started pouring out. And so I had to really begin putting the pieces of my life back together. Mm -hmm. It was all on the, and it was like, you got to, and one of, and if this is what, and so every single year I thought, okay, this is the year I went to Spelman. Um, I've got all these great friends. I have, I have a law degree. My life should really take off. And it just wouldn't, it just wouldn't until finally I was at watch night service at my church the on the, as we were going from 2012 into 2013 And it was almost as if God was speaking to me and saying, you need to stop looking at where you think you should be and recognize that just because you're in a valley does not mean that important work and important lessons cannot take place. That's number one. Mm -hmm. Or two, you are not going to be able to move on to whatever it is <laughs> have for you to do until you do this right here, because you're not going to be able to take everything you've been dragging around with you there. We'll be right back with more of this episode of the Cool Sword Podcast after I 
encourage you to log on to greentopgifts.com because I just need for you to be ready for the holidays. What better way than to come downstairs, walk down the hall, wherever your Christmas tree is, and to see some amazing gifts wrapped in amazing new wrapping paper. I love Clarence Claus. Clarence Claus is absolutely somebody who looks like my grandpa or your grandpa. And it just puts a smile on your face. It just makes you feel happy. Not only do Green Top Gifts have everything for your wrapping paper needs, but they also have amazing stocking stuffers and stickers that feature Clarence Claus. He's a beautiful, jolly old man with a chocolate complexion, a white beard, and red suit. And I've got the special offer just for you, greentopgifts.com. And all you have to do is put in the code COOLSOROR and you will receive 10% off of your purchase. Greentopgifts.com, that is the place for you to go for all of your wrapping paper and gifts for the holiday season. Tell Clarence Claus, I said, what's happening? I love Clarence. He's so cute. Greentopgifts.com. Coolsore is your code for 10% off. Now, back to the show. Right. You had to learn to shake it. You had to, you had to go through it and right. not take the baggage with you. Right. Right. And, and then the thing that I learned, um, there's a person who is there. They help you. They tell you how many minutes you have. That's number one. But they also help you to get a sense of how your talk needs to be rolled out. Mm -hmm. And the person who helped me is one of the co-creators of TEDx Columbus. Her name is Ruth Milligan. And she is an outstanding speech and communications coach. And one of the things that she said to me as I was preparing over the summer um, and get, trying to get my talk and everything together was that she says, you know, what you have to say is less about your former spouse and more about you and the way you have reacted to this experience. Mm -hmm. And that really helped me because what that said to me was, for me, my catalyst was going through a divorce. Yes. Somebody else's catalyst could be something else. But eventually there's going to be something that comes that's going to shift you and then you're going to have to do some work. Yes. How long was the shift? Um, the shift for me started, I want to say in 2006, oh, it man. started with a recognition of how deeply depressed I was. That's okay. number one. Okay. But then, and in some respects, the shifting is still taking place okay. in that I'm still working. Okay. And so the shift started with like, okay, I just got to do the basics here to I'm trying to refine this now. So what, and so what I mean by that is, okay, so I one of the things that I, I've lived with depression since I was 15, but I never had to take medication before. I always knew how to deal with it. Uh -huh. I had been so deeply depressed by the time I figured out that I was depressed that I had to take medication. Yes. And for me, I hated having to do it. I mm -hmm. hated having to take medication. And the other thing that slowed me down was the fact that I didn't have health insurance. Oh, gosh. So I had a few, I would literally only have like 
five to seven good days a month. Yes, because you mentioned that in the Dance with Depression speech that you did, This Is My Brave in 2015, that right. you would have like seven great days for that mm-hmm. particular month. And it was, it was because of the health insurance. Right, Be, right. And because I couldn't go get a, I couldn't get a psychiatrist to evaluate my medications. Mm, 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 mm. And, and, and because I didn't have health insurance. So I did, I got health insurance through a, a temporary job that I did over the summer of 2008. And that was the first time that I had a psychiatrist evaluate my medications. Okay. And, um, that was interesting as well, but and, and even after he evaluated them, the medications that he put me on were not right for me. Right. So this was an 18 month cycle where you were just trying right. to figure out what worked for you. And then after 18 months, you found something that a combination that worked. Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But then you would go on and you would be great for four to five months and you would say, I'm great. And then mm-hmm. therein lies the unraveling that you talked about. How many times did that have to happen before he said enough is enough? This is maybe something that I may need. And where are you with that? Um, This happened to me probably four or five times. Mm. And this is over a span of at least, I mean, I want to say close to a year. Okay. And at that time, the internist who I had at that time, she bottom lined me because I would keep everything together through the week and I had all of my responsibilities of taking care of my children over the weekend because I was it mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. And I would be crying over the weekend and crying and crying and thinking, I need to just go. And I'm just going to check myself in to uh, the like one of the floors. Like I'm going to go to Ohio State and check myself in the upper. Mm-hmm. But I knew that I could not do that because my children especially my daughter, I think she would have lost it. So Mm -hmm. I knew I had to stay. And so finally, when the person who was my internist at the time just looked at me, she is like, look, how many more times are you going to do this to yourself? You have to stop. You just have got to stop. And I stopped. I mean, and I was like, you know what? She's right. I have to do what I need to do. And so from that point on, you, mm-hmm. you've, you've been pretty consistent with everything. Right. Yes, yes. I have. Good. Yeah. And, and I had, um, and I've written about this. I wrote about this piece. Um, I had, I found a psychiatrist who I really liked a lot and then she retired and her retiring. And because I had never been on medications before, one thing that I did not know was that there is a huge shortage of psychiatrists across the the United States. Mm -hmm. So the chore became and the task became, I got to find somebody who can, because I need someone to reevaluate my medications, um, at least on a somewhat regular basis. And so I couldn't find anyone. I felt like I was doing really well. And then um, last August, August of 2016, I had a crisis. Okay. And, um, I talk about that in a piece that I wrote called Another Depression Crisis Revisited. Mm. And so um, I put a post up on Facebook and then I told people, I said, you, you know, in the post, I said, listen, I need to write this down so that it's not in my head. 
please, I don't need you to call me. I don't need you to show up on my doorstep. I don't need you to do anything. I'm going to be fine. But of course, my line sisters did not listen to me. Of course. And I had people FaceTiming me. I had people calling me at six o'clock in the morning. I have one of my line sisters and friends. She puts called somebody who lives here in Columbus and sent them over to another one of our sores who did not pledge with me. She put, she was ahead of me, but she sent her over to my house. So I love them to pieces. But the thing that I said to them was, I said, okay, you all are reaching out to me. But one of the things that you don't know is when I put something like that up on Facebook, you know what I'm thinking and how I'm feeling. But what you don't know is that I get emails and messages from people saying, I am crying as I'm writing, as, as I'm writing this email message to you because you are talking about exactly the way that I feel right now. Ooh. But I, I don't feel like I can do anything about it. And I can't say it. Mm. And so I'm like, so... I'm not doing this. When I put this out here, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for the person who, for whatever reason, doesn't feel like they can do tell their story right. because I want them to know that they are not out there by themselves. Um, but yeah, so that, that was the other part of that. Yeah, yeah. My goodness. Let's talk about these line sisters and how in 1982 you became a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated through the Mu Pi chapter at Spelman College. Did Alpha yeah. Kappa Alpha choose you or did you choose Alpha Kappa Alpha? I think it was both. Okay, tell me initially, about it. It was me. It, initially, it was me. And the me came in the form of my mother. Okay. Who my, my Both of my parents went to Central State. Mm -hmm. My mother did not pledge AKA, but she wanted to be an AKA and by extension, decided that I was going to become an AKA. <laughs> okay. And then my aunt is, is an AKA. And, and she, and she and my uncle, well, my uncle's passed away. She, that was my mother's brother, but my aunt and my cousin, they are AKAs. They are in Atlanta. Okay. Of Kappa Omega. Okay. Nice, nice, nice. I'm a member of a, um, Pi Alpha Omega here outside of Atlanta. Well, in Atlanta as well. So that's beautiful. So um, the tantalizing 37, you were number 34, line name Agatha Christie. It seems like you all are still very close because they check in on you when you not when you didn't even ask for them to. <laughs> right. Oh, we are extremely close. We just celebrated. This is an example. This is an example of this, of how close we are. We just celebrated our 35th. Wow. Um, anniversary yeah. and we did it the 30th um 30th they did at a a resort uh, a spa resort in florida i could not go to that i couldn't attend mm -hmm. and so they decided we're gonna do this at homecoming now i hadn't been to a morehouse homecoming since 1991 oh my goodness i had not i mean i watched what they did and everything on facebook and followed it so um, they decided they were going to go. We'll see. I am as the only person, my daughter, my youngest child is in college now. Okay. And I, and she has a scholarship 
and, and what have you, but I'm responsible for part of it. And I'm like, you know what? I told them, I said, listen, you know, you guys, I thought I was going to be able to come. I'm not going to be able to do it. And they were like, oh no, you, we already have, we've got a hotel. Yeah. We, the hotel Indigo in Midtown. Yeah. Yeah. We got roommates. We've got all of this. You're coming. So I got a buddy pass from another soror. Uh-huh. And then I got on the plane and I got to Atlanta and they paid for everything for me. Oh my. The whole weekend. They were like, do not worry about this. We have got you. That's that's it's love. Just, that's I, sisterhood. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So that's the way we we are like that with each other. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is awesome. So awesome. What's a what's a day in the life? of Stephanie like I mean I know you do you're coaching now of course you're speaking what's a day in the life of Stephanie well now my life I think is really kind of boring no. you because because I'm an empty nester so I'm transitioning okay um because I have a job that I do because I need to have insurance and all of that so right. I go and I do that but when I come home at the end of the day, I have, I am reading, I am writing, I am figuring out what type of coaching sessions I want to go to, what other kinds of activities that I want to go to. Um, and I'm networking with people and trying to connect with different people who are either doing what I want to do or just trying to get to what figure out what my next steps are going to be. Right. What is so your, that what, that's what I spend a, a lot of my time doing. Mm-hmm. My next step is, however, I have got to and what I want to do, I've heard about this, but I've never ever been able to do it. I want to take a bar class. I'm trying to sort of figure out what is it that I want to do because my life used to be up at 4:30. Uh-huh. Get one kid up. Yep. Get another kid up. Jump in the my what was my then my minivan. <laughs> take one kid to latch key. Take another kid to school, and then go to work. Work all day, and then go get the kid from latch key. Go pick up the other kid who's playing soccer. Take one kid to ballet. Yep. Do the. I mean, I'm just. I am. I am was all over the place, just running, running, running. And, um, and then trying to figure out how I'm going to cook dinner in between Mm -hmm. help people with their homework, washing clothes. I mean, just the whole, whole gamut. Yes. And that's, I mean, it's a lot. Yeah. Oh, I, I get it. Totally understand. Totally understand. But now you are probably going to, or I'm sure you're tapping into another version of who you are. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And that is. At first, I thought that once my daughter left, because she's the one I have a son and I have a daughter and my son actually is out of college. He lives in Atlanta. He is working in Brazelton, Georgia. Oh, okay. My daughter, she is the one who keeps me on my toes. She has always been the one to do that. And so I thought that once she left, um, and even some of my line sisters, I know we're concerned, well, are you going to fall into a depression once Cameron leaves? 
And I think that because our relationship and because we uh, have been so like intertwined with each other, that it was really good for her to go and to do what she wanted to do in her own way. And for me to just be over so that I can rediscover myself. Yes. And, and I, I think that that's important. So it gives me a chance to, to sort, to think about, look at my bucket list. I got to do one of my bucket list things in October and it just sort of happened. I applied for a scholarship to go to the Omega Institute Women and Power Retreat. Mm -hmm. And the Omega Institute is in Rhinebeck, New York, upstate New York. And I had a chance. I got a I got a full scholarship. And so I had a chance to go there and I it was it was a tremendous experience to be able to go to Omega. Right. And um and you know, so I have some other things that are on my bucket list that I want to that I'm going to go do and I'm going to plan for. And again, I mean, I have to continue to write because I think that if you're going to, if I'm going to write and you're, if you're going to write, you need to do it every day Uh and you need to do some, even if it's a page, you need to do it every day. But the other thing that I don't think is talked about enough is if you are going to be a writer, you must read. You must, must, must read. And so what I spend my time doing now is really focusing on the types of things that I feel that I need to read to help to feed and facilitate my writing. Yes. What, what are you currently reading? Um, I am reading An Unquiet Mind. Hmm. Um, it is about... Um, a woman who, and I, her name is, I want to say her name is Kate Redfield, and I should remember this, but um, she lived, it's a, her memoir about living with um, bipolar depression. Okay. Um, I am reading The Center Cannot Hold. That is by Ellen Sachs. That's an older book. And she is, she's brilliant. Um, she um, is schizophrenic though. And she discovered that she was a schizophrenic when she was in England, I'm going to, um, I want to say it was Oxford. She was pursuing a master's degree there and, and, and looking at her trying to come to terms with her schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also reading, cause I read some different things at the same time. I just finished one book called devil in the grove. And this is about, um, Thurgood Marshall, um, and his representation of the Groveland boys, um, that, and it's the Groveland boys, um, that it, this took place down in Florida mm-hmm. and these were four young men, um, two, they, um, there were two who were good friends and another two that were good friends, but they didn't know each other, but they were unjustly, um, accused, arrested and, and, and tortured and then um, two of them were killed, wow. allegedly raping a white woman named um, Norma Paget. And it took them, it took the NAACP, I want to say probably almost 20 years before um, they were exonerated. Wow. So I thought that I, I that book was is a really very powerful book. Mm-hmm. And 
um, and just and also reading some things. Um, another book that I'm reading is The Body Keeps the Score. The Body Keeps the Score. Mm-hmm. Wow. What's that about? That book is about um, the body in a very broad way. It is about self-care, but it is also about the experiences that we have and how those things affect our physical body, how they affect our emotional state, our mental state, and how it is that we need to take care of ourselves and be responsive, intentional, and very mindful Mm -hmm. about that. Wow, you've got some some nice books in your rotation. I've written all of those down, and I'm sure folks in the collective who are avid readers like yourself uh, will mark those books down or maybe have already read it as well. How can people connect with you and follow your journey, Stephanie? Um, well, okay, so I am I am on Twitter. Um, I, I probably retweet more than tweet tweet, <laughs> but I am on Twitter at SRM Hughes. And um, in other places, um, because my work is in the Lily, um, Huffington Post, the Good Men Project, Mm -hmm. Thrive Global. So if you Google the name Stephanie Mitchell Hughes, my work and my name will come up there. You can also find me on Facebook at Stephanie Mitchell Hughes. Um, and, um, you can also visit my website, which is again, stephaniemitchellhughes.com. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And I just love how eloquently you speak. I've just been listening to you like, my God, she sounds so beautiful. Thank you. You are so welcome. Continue success on everything. Give your children our very best. And, uh, we look forward to hearing some amazing things from you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And I, I really enjoy your broadcast or your podcast so very much. I learned, I've learned a lot from your guests thank you. and they have given me a lot of food for thought. Oh, thank you. That means so much uh, coming from a woman like you. And I really, really appreciate you uh, just taking some time out of your day to, to tell us more about who you are. And I'm sure uh, so many people will be inspired by your story. Well, thank you. Thank Thank you you. so much. Stephanie Mitchell Hughes, everybody. I am Stephanie Mitchell Hughes. I am an attorney, writer, and speaker. I am a cool soror of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority Incorporated. (laughs) 